In Hebrews chapter 11, the pastor does something unique in all the New Testament. Though we get the same concept, I think, from from the Gospels, in all of the letters in the New Testament, this is the only place where you go on a tour through what we've already called the Great Hall of Faith. Where the idea here is to encourage faith by ancient example. And so he goes example after example after example of people who showed faith, who trusted God in spite of their circumstances, in light of their circumstances, So as I already shared Sunday, the outline for the end of this book, Hebrews chapter 11, where we are tonight, is faith exemplified. Faith exemplified. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, we'll come to hope verified. And we'll round it all out with love applied. Faith exemplified, hope verified, and love applied. The three virtues, faith, hope, and love. Beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This is not a call to religious fervor. This is a call to personal trust. As we enter the great hall of faith, and we come to the first exhibit, the antediluvian exhibit, the pre-flood exhibit, if you will. Three names are given, three pre-flood portraits. You can read the full stories in Genesis 1 through about chapter 9. And these portraits are of Abel and Enoch and Noah. We asked the question on Sunday, why did God skip over Adam and Eve to get to Abel first. And we explained that, that they were more of an example of faithlessness, of not trusting God, than of of trust. But what about the rest of the Genesis 5 guys? What do you mean? Genesis chapter 5 lists ten names from Seth all the way to Noah. The ten generations, actually, from Adam to Noah... And all of these different names. And at the end of Genesis chapter 4, it says this, verse 26, Seth and his son Enosh, with these guys, it says, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Or literally, men began to be called by the name of the Lord. Just as you and I are called Christians, we are called by the name of the Lord. So that far back, people were being called by the name of the Lord. There were people of faith. And in Genesis chapter 5, you go down all these names, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, and Lamech, along with Enoch and Noah are also on that list. But you got to wonder, weren't there other people of faith in that list who could be included here along with Abel and Enoch and Noah? Why only these three? And I think there's something here worth seeing as we begin, and that is that the first two, Abel and Enoch, remarkably prefigure what Peter called in 1 Peter 1.11, 
the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Abel, the suffering Abel, the murdered one whose blood cried out, but you know the blood of Christ speaks something better. Hebrews 12.24, it speaks better than the blood of Abel because Abel's blood cries for justice and the blood of Jesus Christ mercy and grace. But just as Abel is the murdered one, the one sacrificed, if you will, so we see the sufferings, a picture early on of the sufferings of Christ. Well, then he's followed by Enoch in this list. And Enoch is the ascended one. Reminding us of the ascension of Christ. His body went up just as Jesus ascended to the heavens. And I don't believe that this is by accident. I believe it is Holy Spirit calculated to foreshadow Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever. That these things speak of Jesus. Remember He said in the scroll of the book, it is written of Me. And we always ought to be looking for Jesus in these things. And so we see in Abel the sufferings of Christ. We see in Enoch the glories to follow of Christ. And then we come to Noah. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It says, by which he condemned the world. Listen, just his action condemned the world. Yours will too. That doesn't mean that you're condemning people. It means by following Jesus, your very actions condemn a world that rejects him. That's why people get upset. That's why people don't want to be around sometimes Christians who are simply loving and caring and acting like Jesus and talking about Jesus because those very actions make people feel condemned if they haven't received Him, if they don't believe in Him. And such was the case with Noah. As he's building this ark, people began to feel condemned and so they had to mock him and go at him. But Noah, there's so much here. It says he was warned by God about things not yet seen. And there were at least two that I can think of. First one was rain. Things not yet seen. Genesis chapter 2 verse 6 tells us a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. That literally before uh, the flood itself... There are those who who suppose, and, and I think they're right, that there was no rain. That there was a mist, kind of a tropical mist that would come up from the ground. That the world was surrounded, and we have evidence of this, by a great water canopy that protected against the harmful UV rays of the sun and, and maintained a lush tropical global environment. But that canopy busted wide open, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the skies were opened. Noah, up to that point, may have never seen rain. So it would take faith to build a boat in a dry place waiting for rain to come when you hadn't seen or experienced it. If he had seen rain, and if I'm wrong about that, now that's possible. <laughs> then he still had never seen rain like this. The floodgates of the sky opened. But there's something else that Noah hadn't seen when he started building the ark. His children. His children. Verse 7 tells us that he 
in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. My friends, this was before he had a household. Before he had any children at all. He began work on the ark, according to biblical calculation, 20 years before Shem was born, his oldest son. So he began to prepare for his children two decades before the first of his children came into the world by faith for the salvation of his household. Now I'm going to give you ten things to jot down tonight that will take us through the great hall of faith. Ten principles of faith, if you will. And the first one is faith is a family matter. Faith is a family matter. We see this in Noah. That he had concern for the future of his family. For the salvation of his household. At that time, it would have been for Mrs. Noah. But then for the children that he didn't even have. Faith happens first and foremost in the family. Are you willing to fight that fight? Even when it feels like you're losing. How many of you parents have ever felt like you were losing the fight of faith in your household? Okay, don't raise your hands, but I'm going to. Thank you, Doug, for joining me. From time to time. I'm not saying that, you know, there's a big failure going on at the Crawford house, but from time to time you feel like, am I getting through? Are they hearing anything? And you pray about that and you struggle with it and the Lord keeps drawing us back and saying, fight this fight. Moms and dads, are your children worth it? Those of you who don't have kids yet, what about it? The future of your household. Do you have faith for the salvation of children not even yet born? You see, no, I did. Faith is a family matter. And we see this in play from Abel to Moses to Rahab to, to David. We see in all of these that faith is a family matter. You go to Moses, who we'll get to in a few minutes, but Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, he said, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Is the name of Jesus spoken and heard often in your home? That's part of fighting the fight. Do you bring Him into conversations where there's stress or worry or problems or issues that come up? When discipline has to be lovingly applied, do you do so with the name of Jesus? Because faith is a family matter. And we as parents are on the front lines of the battle for the faith of our children. Well, my kids have moved out, Rick, and I blew it. You're not done. Are they living? You're not done. Are you living? You're not done. So long as we draw breath and they draw breath, we fight that fight. We pray those prayers. We intercede. We refuse to give up because we happen to know who we're talking to. We also happen to know who we're hearing from. And more about that in just a moment. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. But again, it doesn't matter their age. And by the way, fighting the fight of faith for children in a household, it doesn't matter their response. What do you mean? Well, I mean it matters ultimately. You want it to matter. You want for their salvation. But it doesn't matter whether they're responding well to you or not. You don't stop fighting. You don't shrink back. You press on. You preach Jesus. You love them like Jesus. You share the gospel over and over. They must choose, but we must teach. We must model, speak into, intercede for, and again, never, ever 
shrink back. Don't give up. Don't give up. Hebrews 10.39, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And I'll tell you what, if Noah can have faith for children not yet born, I can have faith for children who are out of the house. Faith is trusting God for them. Faith matters, and faith is a family matter. Genesis 18.19, God said this of Abraham, I've chosen Abraham so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And all of this... And much more, I would encourage you to continue to look at these things and pray about them and study them. But all of this just in the pre-flood display of the Great Hall of Faith. Abel, Enoch, Noah, these three. By the way, Noah adds something to the picture. We get this beautiful panoramic view, if you will, of a Christ-centered faith when we look just at these first three men. Abel exemplified faith even in suffering, even in death. Enoch exemplified faith by overcoming death. And Noah exemplified faith by overcoming judgment. That's the Christ-centered life. That's the life that, that we live, that we believe, we trust, regardless of circumstance, in death or in life, in sorrow, in hardship, we have faith. And we have faith knowing we have overcome death. Some of us sitting here tonight may never taste death. Right here. <laughs> A few of you are raising your hands. Yeah, put me on that list. So we may, like Enoch, be caught up. Noah, again, exemplifying that faith, overcoming judgment, which if you are in Jesus, you have already overcome judgment. Because he did. Now, let's, let's leave the first display, if you will, and go further into the Great Hall of Faith, verse 8. By faith, Abraham. So now we're coming to the patriarchs. Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Anyone ever feel like that? Lord, I don't have a clue where you're leading me. I don't have any idea what you're doing. But if you're in it, I'm going. He didn't have any idea where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Verse 10, 4, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, within this hall, there are four major, what I would call grand faith statements. And we've already seen two of them. The first one is back in verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's grand faith statement number one. And then we hear about more people. And then we get to the second one. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That is grand faith statement number two. And there are two more, and I'll show you when we get to them. Looking for a city whose architect... And builder is God. The architect draws up the plans. The builder puts the plans into play. And God did both with this this world. He did both with the kingdom to come. The, The Hebrew writer and the Spirit says that's what Abraham was looking for. 
That's the inheritance he desired. It's why he never bought land save for the cave at Machpelah, which was for his burial. But he never purchased land because the land was his inheritance. He didn't know when, he didn't know how. Clearly, on his deathbed, Abraham recognized that his inheritance was for a time yet future. So he bought the cave at Machpelah so he could walk out the front of the cave in his resurrection and right on into his inheritance. Well, see, that's faith. He just trusted God. He didn't have any reason to other than God said, come on, let's go. And Abraham began to follow and walk out this amazing walk of faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, you may recall, said every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so the second thing to note here is that faith is focused on the foundation. Faith is a family matter, number one, but faith is focused on the foundation. That's the second principle. Which is to say, trusting God looks to God for the substance of things hoped for, the substructure. Remember we talked about that on Sunday? The substructure. The faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the foundation, if you will. Faith is focused on the foundation, and the foundation is Jesus. No one can lay any foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. Abraham headed out not knowing where he was going, but he had faith enough to know, trust enough to know that he was going God's way. And God's way would lead to the city with foundations right up ahead. Going God's way. You don't have to know the where. You just have to know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way. If we know the way, then we don't worry about the where. I've used this example so many times, and I've even used it with my own kids. You know, we get in the car and we start driving somewhere, and the kids never think about, never ask about how to get there. Because they know I know how to get there. So they just get in the car and they play their games or they talk to each other, they look out the window, you know, and, and pay no attention until we arrive and then they're there. They have absolute trust that dad or mom are going to get them where we need to go. They never wonder if we're lost. And we have been a few times. Faith in God is the same way. He knows the way. All I got to do is know the way and the way is Jesus. And He will take care of the where. I loved back in 2004-2005, I sojourned. It was so cool. When this fellowship first began, and some of you don't know this, my family moved six times in 15 months. We moved over from Anacortes once the bridge got going, and, and we just, Cheryl and I both knew that the Lord wanted us to be on Whidbey Island, even though we were living about as close Anacortes way as we would have moved if we had moved down to Oak Harbor, but we had a sense we were to be right here. And we prayed about that, and we, we ended up buying land, which was the weirdest thing I never thought I would do. Took everything we had and bought this land, and then for 15 months, we built and waited and built and waited. We lived with friends. We rented a house. We lived in another place. We had six places we moved. And during that time, wonderfully, here at the bridge, we were in the book of Genesis. We were studying Abraham and Isaac and Jacob living in tents, and I totally related. I really did. It, it made it, it was such a joy because what could have been hard, hard on our kids, hard on our marriage, it wasn't. We had a great time, and every day we were talking about how we're just like Abraham. 
Just like Isaac and Jacob. We're just moving place to place, hopping around the promised land. You know, we'll get there. I never did buy a cave. Held off on that one. But that idea of sojourning, we are with the sojourners. And that's what you find with the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you find the sojourners. And what's important about that is to remember that we are, all of us, sojourners. That we're not to be rooted into this place. We're focused on the foundation, but the foundation is not this world. The foundation is not your home. It's not your job. It's not the life that you've dug yourself into. That's not your foundation. And it can shake apart like that. But the foundation is Jesus Christ. And until Jesus comes, we are just sojourners here. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself, watch this, received ability to conceive. Even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered Him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that. (laughs) Describing Abraham. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand by the seashore. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. You know, Sarah, 90. 90 years old. She was 90 years old when she started to read what to expect when you're expecting. She's picking out the crib. She's buying the mobile. You know, she's on Amazon looking at baby clothes. I mean, 90 years old. This is not typically what you do when you're 90. Yes, Sarah laughed at first when she found out that she was going to be pregnant. Genesis 18, verses 12 through 15. And it's a very funny story. Because she laughs, and God says, why did Sarah laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. And he says, oh, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) Of course she did, but you know what? I can tell you this. She finally trusted God before she conceived. Not after. Not when she realized she was pregnant. That's not when faith came. Faith came before she conceived. How do we know that? Because the author tells us, the Holy Spirit, that by faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. She had to trust first. And trusting in God is what opened that door, allowed her to come into that place. she I'll put it this way, she could not have become pregnant otherwise if she didn't trust Him. Partially because God doesn't force His will on anybody. And was not going to force her to become pregnant. She needed to trust. He waited for her to trust. This phrase, ability to conceive, is interesting in the Greek. It uses three words. Dunamis, katabole, and sperma. Literally, ability to conceive is power for the casting of the seed. Because she believed, because she trusted God, she received power for the casting of the seed. Do you get that? What a picture. Jesus said, truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. That's the size of a mustard seed. I don't mean to be crude, but Sarah had faith the size of a sperm. Far tinier than a mustard seed. And what came of that faith of this woman of God was not a mountain to be thrown into a sea, but an ever-expanding nation that is still in existence today. 
4,000 years later. Wow. A people who are as innumerable as the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. A people that Jesus said this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. The people of Israel. Because Sarah believed. Her faith wasn't huge. Again, teeny tiny. But she birthed a nation. And what this reminds me is faith principle number three. Faith yields to the flow of power. And note this and, and listen carefully here. Faith yields to the flow of power. Are you talking about faith healing, Rick? Are you talking about word of the word of faith movement and, and all of that? Or are you talking about name it, claim it? Listen, faith is very simply being yielded to God's power regardless of how it's seen or experienced. Regardless of how His power plays out or is worked out in your life, faith just yields itself to the power of God. You trust in God to do what He says He's going to do. Even when it doesn't look like it's possible, you put your faith in Him to accomplish. And we will see this vividly in a coming exhibit just down the hall. But we learn to trust God knowing He works for the increase of our faith. And sometimes... Your trust in God, get this, it's not for the increase of your faith. Sometimes your trust in God is for the increase of someone else's faith and has nothing to do with you at all other than that you trusted Him. There will be times, and there have been times in your life where He calls upon you, calls upon me to trust Him, and we're going, why? Why do I have to go through this? Why am I in this? And we think it's all about us. As Cheryl and I were talking about earlier this week, and we had some. I, I have a tendency just to spill everything that's going on in my private life when I'm teaching. I'll try not to do that because there's some intimate things that we talked about relating to our faith and our family. But I will tell you this much: she didn't just go down to Southern California to care for an ailing grandmother until she passed away. There's a lot more that's been going on down there. Much bigger than what we expected when she got on the plane. We thought she was going to help. No, no, no. Much more has been happening. And perhaps with her permission, I can tell you more of that at a future time. But faith does that. Yields to the flow of the power of God. How much has Sarah and Abraham's experience influenced generations with regards to faith? All Sarah was asked to do was believe that she could possibly, by the flow of the power of God, become pregnant. She believed that. Who has it impacted? It's impacting you right now. It's still hitting us tonight. And generation after generation has heard this and has come to understand this. Paul said in Romans 4.19, Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. (laughs) Quoting exactly what the Hebrew writer said. Now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. See, that's faith. Does that sound religious to anyone here? Let me read this again, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. That has nothing to do with churches and steeples and and all of the peoples. It's a very specific relational thing. God said He'd do it. I trust Him to do it. That's faith. And Abraham had it. And 
Sarah had it. And this brings us then right into the third of the four grand statements of faith. Verse 6 is the first one. Verse 10 is the second. Verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, for Abraham that was Ur of the Chaldees, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And He's talking about all of these dying in faith. Abel died in faith. What do you mean? He died because he trusted God with the firstlings of his flock. Enoch. Well, Enoch didn't die, did he? And clearly, Enoch... How can you say Enoch didn't receive what was promised? He got raptured. Yeah, but the rapture has not yet taken place. Yeah, he went home, but it hasn't been fulfilled. It hasn't been finalized. The whole thing hasn't been done. Enoch has been waiting for the entire history of the world to go by. For God to finish that one. Noah... Wow, he and his family were rescued, eight people. But did he get to see what that rescue would ultimately result in? That is Jesus Christ? Not until Jesus came. All of these had to wait. And of course, Abraham and Sarah, for their part, had to wait as well. If you think about all these listed so far, and we could continue right down the list, and we will, all of them were outsiders. Abel was an outsider in his own family. You can almost imagine Cain and perhaps Adam and Eve too looking at Abel going, he's just such a, he's such a nut. You gave the best of your flock, son? What were you thinking? You look at Enoch's family. Where is he? I don't know. He's off walking with God again somewhere. Noah's family. Can you even imagine ladies being Mrs. Noah and watching her husband build the ark? You heard from who? About what? Are you crazy? Eat your soup. You know what I mean? Think about each one of these. Foreigners, aliens, strange. Abraham and Sarah come walking into a country of Canaanites who didn't even know who they were. With all their flocks and herds, they just kind of come moving in. Who is this guy? And what's this single God that he's talking about? I don't get that at all. They were all aliens in this world. One way or another, all of these went out from their own. One way or another, all of these, listen, spoke a different language. Principle number four. Faith is a foreign language in this world. Faith is a foreign language in this world. It will always make you seem different. Buckle up. Because if you're going to profess faith in Jesus Christ, this world will not get it, will not understand. It's as if you're speaking a foreign language. That's what the language of faith is. I I was going to talk all about this, but it ended up being splashed all over the news, and you've, I'm sure, heard of it by now. Former aide, White House aide, and now she's on Celebrity Big Brother, uh, Ponderosa. Ponderosa. Anyway, she said this of of Vice President Mike Pence, and if you haven't heard this, just listen. She said he's extreme. She said, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, but he thinks Jesus tells him to say things, and I'm like, Jesus didn't say that. She said, that's just scary. 
And then, of course, on The View, which I know all of you watch, Joy Behar, from The View, literally called hearing Jesus, she equated it with mental illness. And the audience uproariously applauded and laughed. If you say you hear Jesus, you're insane. That's mental illness, she said. You know what? God is not ashamed of those who not only speak to Him, but hear from Him. And I'll tell you something else. What happened in Parkland, Florida, may not have happened if we were still listening to God in the public schools. If we were still praying and expecting our Father to speak life into our country, and into our schools, and into our families. We have cut Him out. He's not punishing us, but I'll tell you what, cut God out and the protection lifts. We have never seen in this country the kind of senseless violence. We've seen wars, horribly violent wars, these types of things, but we haven't seen the kind of senseless violence that we've seen going on, be it Parkland or Las Vegas or Columbine. Why is this? It's because while some people perhaps are still talking to God... Even the atheist, when he gets into a bind, starts to talk to God. Get me out of this one, if you're there. But the problem is, nobody's listening. Are we listening? Faith is a foreign language in this world. And John said in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the things... Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But faith has been called the lingua franca, the common language of heaven. We are learning to speak that language. We learn it now because we will speak it then. We will speak the language of trust. Now, you might think, that's a little weird. If you say that we're going to speak the language of trust then, we'll see God. Why do we need to have faith if we can see Him? Because faith is trust. I see my wife all the time. And I trust her. Seeing has nothing to do with it. It's what the heart decides in a relationship with another person. When we are with Jesus during our seven year honeymoon in heaven, when we are ruling and reigning with Him for a thousand years on the earth, when we head on into eternity in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, we will speak the language of trust because we will trust our God. We will trust our Jesus. And that's the language he's trying to teach us now. And so Zechariah chapter 3 verse 9, which is a verse that's been kind of pinging around our, our offices here the last couple of weeks, says, I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. My friends, purified lips speaks of the language of faith. And faith is a foreign language in this world. Verse 17, by faith Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. His only begotten? What are you talking about? His only begotten? What about Ishmael? Isaac was his only legitimately begotten. Isaac was the legitimate son. Isaac was the heir. Isaac was God's intention. Genesis 22, verse 2. God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. 
Now, it's not that God refused to acknowledge Ishmael. In fact, if you read the story of Ishmael in the Scriptures, God blessed him. True, he was a wild donkey of a man. I actually like the King James translation of that better, but I'm not going to go there. He was blessed by God. Ishmael was. God didn't just cut him off or ignore him. But what God did not recognize, note this, He did not recognize Abraham's faithlessness. Ishmael was born of flesh. Isaac was born of faith and trust. And that's what God said when when He says, take your only son. The reason why He saw Isaac as the only son is because Isaac was the son of faith. And God, by His grace, refused to recognize the flesh decision of Adam or of Abraham. He recognized the faith decision. Because, number five, in our list, faith invites forgiveness and grace. Faith invites forgiveness, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you'll note through this entire hall of faith, there's a lot of messy people here, but what God recognizes is their faith. Their faith. Do you trust Him with your salvation? Do you believe God for His promises and for His power to save? Not relying on yourself and what your flesh can accomplish, but what He accomplishes. Do you just have faith in that? And by the way, Abraham was an early believer also in resurrection, which is an absolutely vital aspect of our faith. Look at verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise even from the dead, from which He also received Him, that is Isaac, back as a type. And we've looked at this story. One of the most stunning pictures of the father-son relationship of of God and Jesus is Genesis 22 as portrayed in the father-son relationship of Abraham and Isaac. That word type, he received him back as a type, is parabole, parable. Parabole, which is from two words, para, which means alongside, and bala, which means to throw. So a parable is when you throw alongside a story with a reality or a picture with a truth to explain the truth better. And the picture in this case is Abraham and Isaac and the truth is God the Father and Jesus the Son. And it's one of the most, in my mind, beautiful pictures in all of the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis 22 through 24. In the father-son relationship and the bride and the whole thing is there. It's remarkable. I wish I had time to go into it tonight, but we're going to let it go. The account, just know this, of Abraham and Isaac is a divinely historical parable for God the Father and Christ the only begotten. For Romans 10.9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will will be saved. Abraham believed as he raised the knife, as he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. He did not believe that he would be stopped. He believed that he was about to sacrifice Isaac, but somehow God was going to bring him back from the dead. That's faith. That's trusting God that even in the midst of the potentiality of an incredible loss, God knows what He's doing. God's got this. Verse 20. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau 
even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, verse 22, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now, before we get to Moses, the deliverer, we're still at the display of the patriarchs. And these three now, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, are mentioned. And you need to note this number six in our list, faith forges to the future. Faith forges to the future. In Genesis 27... Isaac was deceived by Jacob. Do you remember the story? Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older brother. Esau's the tough outdoorsman. Jacob was part of his mother's sewing circle. And so very different brothers. And Isaac, he loved Esau. His hunter's son. His fierce go-get-em son. His big red hairy son. And so he said, son, bring me some of that stew that I love so much that you make with the wild game and fix that up and I'm ready to give you the, the blessing. Well, so Esau goes out to hunt. Rebecca gets a great idea, puts hairy arms on top of, you know, Jacob's very soft arms, sends him in with some food prepared. Isaac, who's blind in his age, couldn't really see him, but felt the hairy arms and tasted the stew. And the voice sounds like Jacob, but the arms and the food, this is, this is Esau. And so he gives him the blessing. He's deceived. Now you read this and you say, wait, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. He was deceived. How could he have been acting in faith? Get this. When Isaac realized that he had been duped, he didn't reverse it. He let it stand. He realized by faith this was how it was supposed to be. Genesis 27 verse 33. He's talking to Esau who's now come in. He's like, wait, wait, he stole my blessing. That's not right. No. And Isaac says, I blessed him. And he pauses and says, yes. And he shall be blessed. In Genesis 28 verse 4, he brings Jacob back in. He says, may the Lord also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Listen, he could have reversed it. He could have canceled it out and said, you lied to me, it doesn't stand, I'm going to bless Esau anyway. It was by faith that Isaac chose to stand on the blessing of the younger son instead of the older. I wonder how many conversations Isaac and Rebecca had about those two babies when they were in her womb. And about what the Lord told Rebecca that the older would serve the younger. I think Isaac remembered that and by faith decided to let the blessing stand. Now, if you skip to verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus to the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. And in Genesis 50, he did just that. Verse 24, Genesis 50, he said, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. He's dying. They're in Egypt. All is well. But Joseph knew they needed to go home. They were going to go home because that was God's promise. And so faith forges to the future. Whether it's blind Isaac saying, yes, 
yes, and Jacob shall be blessed. Or whether it's Jacob's son Joseph saying, carry my bones when you go back to the promised land. Both men were looking ahead, looking to the future. What about Jacob? In the middle verse there, by faith, verse 21, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Don't miss this. In the story, though he's named Jacob here in verse 21, when he blessed the sons of Joseph, he's called Israel. He's not called Jacob. Well, that's interesting. Jacob was his original name. God changed his name to Israel. Jacob means heel catcher. He's the one who's always, you know, scheming. Israel, Prince of God. And so this shift happened, and now he's Israel. In Genesis 48, the story goes that Joseph brought his two sons. He brought Ephraim and Manasseh to Israel to be blessed. And intentionally, the Bible tells us that Joseph moved Ephraim so that he would be to Israel's right. And he moved Manasseh to be to Israel's left because Ephraim was oldest and Manasseh was youngest. He moves his sons like this and that old codger crossed his hands and blessed the younger over the older. Blessing the younger first is exactly what had happened to him. And you could say, oh, well, maybe he did it as a nod to his own past. You know, kind of maintaining the family tradition of blessing the younger over the older. Not so. Faith forges to the future. Israel was doing something that was not past tense, but was future tense. Listen again, verse 21, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, this is important, on the top of his staff. What? What what exactly does that mean? If you look up the verse in Genesis 48, verse 2, it, it reads this way, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Well, here it says he leaned on his staff. There he says he leaned on the head of the bed, in essence, in the Hebrew. So which one is it? And if you look at the two words in the Hebrew, and just follow me on this one, the Hebrew word mitah, M-I-T-T-A-H, if you're transliterating, means bed. The Hebrew word mate, M-A-T-T-E-H, means staff. The two words are very close. And so what the commentators do with this, because they have to logically figure out, is they say, oh, well, it's a scribal error. So really, it should go back to the original Hebrew, not that he leaned on his staff, but he leaned on the head of his bed. And then they just messed up the word. If so, then the Holy Spirit allowed it. The Holy Spirit uses this. What are you talking about? Here at the end of his life, what we see is the sojourning staff of Jacob being forged into the royal scepter of Israel. What was a bed in the original translation is now a staff. The man Jacob owning the position of Israel. Are you with me here? You're kind of looking at me like, what? Let me read you one more verse. When he was blessing Judah in the next chapter, old Jacob, blessing the royal tribe of the coming Christ, said, Genesis 49.10, the scepter 
or the staff shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It had to be a staff. See, the staff, that's the picture. And that's, that's what the Hebrew writer is drawing out here. The picture of a faith that is forging to the future. The picture of blessings. And as he's blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, he's looking to the future. He's leaning on the staff. That is, the staff that will remain until Shiloh comes. The scepter of the royalty of Jesus Christ. Faith forges ahead, always looking forward. Verse 23. Now we come to the next exhibit, which is the mosaic exhibit. If you like nice mosaics, you'll like this one. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. His parents, Amram and Jochebed, they're they're not mentioned here except that they're his parents. They're not named, but that's the faith being described in verse 23. It's the faith of the parents. Right? Same as the faith of Noah who prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. So Amram and Jochebed also prepared an ark, a little one, in which they put Moses and they did it by faith. And by faith, verse 24 tells us, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering, note this, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This this used to kind of tweak me when I was younger. Shouldn't he have said the faith of God or the reproach of God? What did Moses know of Christ? Why does he say that he considered the reproach of Christ great? How could Moses, what is he talking about there? Well, what did Moses know of the Christ? Deuteronomy 18.15, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own countrymen, and you shall listen to him. I will raise up a prophet from among their own countrymen like you, the Lord says. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And of course, that's a prophecy of Jesus. And Moses, Moses considered the reproach of Messiah who would come through Israel as greater riches, as greater value. Do you? When the joy behars of the world make fun of you for saying that you listen to Jesus, think you're mentally ill when you say you hear His voice, would you rather accept that reproach because you know there are greater riches in Jesus Christ? I love how freely the pastor interchanges Christ the Messiah with Moses. New Testament with Old. Because you know what? It's one book. And it's one unfolding story of the reality of Jesus. And what faith does practically is it carries us far beyond what our eyes can see. Or even sometimes beyond what our minds can comprehend. You realize sometimes the prophets prophesied things they didn't understand. They heard what they were saying, they saw what they were writing, but they didn't get it. It didn't make sense to them, they didn't have the context for it. But they trusted the Lord anyway. They gave the prophecy. It didn't have to make sense to them. Your life doesn't always have to make sense to you. The question is whether or not you trust the Lord in it. Lord, really? Here? Now? This direction? That direction? 
Faith is acting by trusting God without seeing the whole picture. And being content not to have to. Faith forges the future. It rests, it trusts that God knows what He's doing. In us and, and through us. And by, by the way, as I said earlier, keep your eyes open because He's always doing something far bigger than what your eyes can immediately see. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Because you've seen Me? Have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Blind faith, the world says. Trust, the Lord says. Trust. Verse 27. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Now, quickly on Moses here, when I read his first exit, you might say his first exodus from Egypt, here it says he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. It's almost like a do-do-do faith moment as Moses says, I'm leaving this place and going off to find my fortune with the Lord in the world. No. No. If you read the Exodus story, it looks more like he's on the lamb. You know, he's murdered an Egyptian and he's running for his life. And yet here the Hebrew pastor says, By faith he left Egypt. Really? Exodus 2.15, when Pharaoh heard of the matter, he tried to kill Moses, and Moses fled the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Well, how does that work? I love this. You will notice throughout the great hall of faith, and especially you will see this on Sunday, that that all of these are glowing examples of this, that faith fashions us after the character of Christ. That's number seven. Faith fashions us after the character of Christ. It's trusting a God who sees us not as we are, but as we are becoming, or as we will become in Jesus. Moses is seen here as a faithful man, even as he's leaving Egypt, because he would be a faithful man. And every single person in the great hall of faith, every portrait we come to, and a couple of them, like I said, you're going to look at and go, What? How is that an example of faith? God saw the faith that they would have even before they did. We see Moses fleeing. God sees the deliverer. And God looks at you and He looks at me and that's what He sees. He sees us. We see our weak moments, our failures, our runaways. And He says, Oh, angels, look. Look at this one. You're going to be so amazed at what she's about to do at what He's going to accomplish just by trusting me. And that's a marvelous thing about this. Faith fashions us after the character of Christ. Why? Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Romans eight twenty nine and 30. Verse 28. By faith... He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Now you might say, well, how is it faith 
for the Israelites passing through the sea after having gone through the Passover, and I'm not even touching that one. Verse 28 is the whole story of the Passover, which is an amazing story of faith and points forward again because faith always forges to the future. Passover pointing forward to the Lord's Supper and what was to come. But again, I'm not talking about that tonight. You can study that out and think that through. But they passed through the Red Sea. So the Israelites are walking through the Red Sea. Imagine you're part of that. How did that take faith? Seeds open up and you just walk through. I mean, you, you saw that the sea was piled up on either side. You saw the land was dry. Okay, in you go. Uh, yeah, you dug shaking his head. No, I, I would be standing there going, Cheryl, kids, you go first. I'll come behind you. You know, I mean, think about the faith that it had to take out of the, the trust among the Israelites to enter the Red Sea, to walk through that and to see these walls of massive water and know if that comes down, we're soup. We're done. Faith is simply trust. And it would have taken a remarkable, tremendous faith to trust God to hold those walls of water back as they journey through the dry bed. You know, something else here. Those who say the Red Sea, have you heard this? The Red Sea was actually the Reed Sea. It's one of the stupidest things that's ever been concocted by those who reject the idea of the Red Sea and the passing through. The Red Sea was actually the Reed Sea. Well, what's the Reed Sea? It's a sea a little bit further north, called a sea, but it's really a marshland. And it's very, very shallow. And so there are those who say, well, what really happened was it wasn't the Red Sea, actually. It was the Reed Sea. And there was a great wind, and it kind of caused a dry area. And then they just they walked through that. And I think, okay, well, if you're going to believe that, then you have to concede that it would be just as miraculous to drown an entire army of Egyptian chariots in two feet of water. Either way, we've got a miracle. It was the Red Sea. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho... Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We just jumped 40 years. From verse 29 to verse 30. Why? Because those 40 years were a picture of faithlessness. And the Spirit is not concerned with those things. He's concerned with faith. So by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, it's just marvelous. Faith among the conquerors. Faith among the resurrected. Faith among those who are powerful and doing amazing things in the name of God. And faith among the conquered. Faith among those who simply died. Faith, number eight in our list, is father-centered, not flesh-centered. Because faith, this is so important, it's a vital aspect that some some elements of the church today have misunderstood. 
Faith is father-centered, not flesh-centered. It trusts God regardless of what God does. Regardless of His response. They're not even listed here, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood this. This concept of faith. When told that if they didn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's big honking statue, they'd be thrown into a furnace of fire. Nebuchadnezzar was all heated up over this one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said this, Daniel 3.17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Listen, faith is the stuff of even if He does not. Faith says, God, I trust you even if you don't rescue me from this circumstance. I trust you even if this illness takes me down. I trust you no matter what takes place in my life. Father, I trust you. That's faith. Faith isn't, I trust you as long as it's working out for me. As long as, well, as long as I'm conquering kingdoms and performing acts of righteousness and obtaining promises and shutting the mouths of lions and quenching the power of the fire, as long as I'm escaping the edge of the sword, and as long as from weakness I'm made strong, and as long as I'm mighty in war and I put foreign armies to flight, and by the way, as long as my wife receives me back from the dead by resurrection, well then I'll believe. But you can't stop there. As we talked about at Connect, you have to continue on in verse 35. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonments. Because faith is father-centered, not flesh-centered. Even if he does not. The truth is, if circumstantial outcome is proof of a person's faith why were not all of these listed here why weren't they all spared and are you telling me that some of these who did not accept release and who were mocked and scourged and chained and imprisoned are you going to tell me that Jesus Christ himself who was crucified did not have enough faith Oh, if only he had had a little more faith he could have come right off the cross no it was faith that kept him on the cross trust of the Father. It is faith that refuses to bow to any other God regardless of what happens to me. Because I trust Him. Oh, if you only had a little more faith, maybe you'd be healed. I despise hearing that. Because some of the most faithful people I have ever known were not healed. Faith has nothing to do with the outcome, at least temporally. It has everything to do with believing that God knows what He's doing. And He's going to see me through, one way or another. Verse 37 says they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Did these just not have enough faith? They just didn't trust enough? Is that that what you're telling me? Two prophets, both named Zechariah, 
One Zechariah from the first temple period, written about in Second Chronicles 24, verse 21. The second Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, whose book we have in the scriptures, was from the second temple period. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. And Jesus refers to him in Matthew 23, 35. Both Zacharias, prophets of God, men of faith and trust, were stoned to death. And that's who he's talking about. And who was ever sawn in two? We believe it was Isaiah. Good tradition teaches that Isaiah was jammed into a hollow log by the evil king Manasseh, and that log sawn in half, and that was how he died. The great messianic prophet was sawn in two. Did he just not have enough faith? And note that he includes, and I find this fascinating, they were tempted. They were tempted. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Let's clarify something. The Bible doesn't say that God's not going to give you what you can't handle. God's not going to give me more than I can handle. Now I believe that's true. I believe He knows what we can handle and He only gives us as much as we can take. But the context is temptation. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. He's dealing with temptation there. And here, among the faithful, He mentions those who were tempted. You know, faithful people are tempted all the time. Temptation doesn't mean sin. Temptation is just that which put what's put out in front of us. And we have to make a choice. And people of great faith are tempted all the time to choose wrongly and yet choose to trust God instead. Temptation can, it should be, it should be painful if we are people who trust God. When temptation comes, we should feel that and choose to trust Him anyway. And all of these are people marvelously, verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that. These are people to emulate. These are people to behave like. This is faith. And the world is not worthy of these wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. From Elijah, who hid in the cave, to the prophets who were hidden in caves by Obadiah, to David himself, hiding out in Engedi. For so many of these people of great faith, caves and holes in the ground were sometimes called home. Because faith trusts God. Regardless of my circumstances, faith is always father Centered. Do you see what the pastor has done with all this? In leading us through this hall, this great hall of faith, and showing us portrait after portrait after portrait. He's just done something marvelous for you and for me. You know, I was, I was thinking today, everybody needs to go see Yad Vashem. It's the Holocaust Memorial there in Jerusalem. Or any Holocaust memorial, but at Yad Vashem it is especially stirring to to be there in Jerusalem. At Yad Vashem, four and a half out of six million Jewish victims of the Shoah, Shoah is the Hebrew for the Holocaust, 
have been digitally and biographically recorded and saved. That is their stories. One of the things that's so stirring about going through Yad Vashem as you pass through that hall is you come to video after video after video after video of Holocaust survivors describing what happened. And they do that so that the world will never forget. But as you pass through Yad Vashem and you go back, and you can't just walk through and get out quickly. You're stuck. You've got to move through it all the way, through all the exhibits and everything that was proof positive of this horrific Holocaust. When you finally come out of the other end and you regather with the group and begin to talk about what's just happened, the impact, the impact is the stories of the witnesses. And that's what the pastor has just been doing, oh, a little differently. See, these stories are compelling, not because they're propping up history, though they do. They're, they're for honor, but they're for more. The pastor has just surrounded us with witnesses to encourage and increase our faith. That's what makes this chapter so different. Aside from the four grand faith statements, the whole rest of the chapter is just talking about people of faith. And the more we see them, the more we think, yeah, they're not that different than me. Yeah, he did that. I can do this. We are surrounded by these marvelous witnesses. I've shared this with you before. One of my favorite old Rich Mullen songs The chorus says, did they tell you stories about the saints of old? Stories about their faith. They say stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. Stories of faith. And it brings us to the fourth and final grand statement of faith, verse 39. And all these having gained approval through their faith. Note that, through their faith, not their works. It would be a completely different chapter if we were just talking about the works of these people. They gained approval through their faith. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Why? Because, number nine, faith is fulfilled in fellowship. Faith is fulfilled in fellowship. We will all experience the completion of our faith when we gather together in the fellowship of all those who have had faith. Which means tonight, your faith is not complete. You're not there. You're breathing, you're still being sanctified. God is not finished. He will be finished when we all gather together in that grand and glorious heavenly fellowship. God is doing a big thing here. We get to be part of it. We're caught up in it. But He is combining the faith of all who have trusted Him across all the ages and down through the halls of history. And it's coming to a glorious end. Romans 1.17 describes it. For in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As is written, the righteous will live by faith. So from their faith to our faith, and as we move out of the great hall of faith and experience their faith, our faith is the better for it. And we will come to that point in the fellowship of the faithful, of rejoicing in what God has done. Two more verses and we're done. Therefore, chapter 12, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross 
despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, for consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Number ten, faith is fortified as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Considering all these others, what we could call the fellowship of the witnesses of faith, or perhaps we could call it, as the author does, the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. Not just these 16 named people, not just the anonymous in the great hall of faith, but all those of faith who have gone before us surround us in this great cloud and our faith is strengthened, it's fortified as we fix our eyes on Jesus the way they did. And it's all coming together. What's marvelous is this great cloud of witnesses that right now surrounds us is a cloud that we ourselves will join. Jesus Himself said, Mark 13, 26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And I, for one, believe we're not talking about nimbus and cumulus. We're talking about clouds of the faithful surrounding and following Jesus as He triumphantly returns to establish His kingdom. So consider this great hall of faith. Consider the faith of those who surround us like a cloud of witnesses, but best of all, consider Jesus. And then ask one simple question. How shall we live?